This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design invests in building and teaching designers using the best tools for the job. I asked John Lax, Director of Product Design, what has he learned about design since working at Facebook? The biggest thing I've learned about design since starting here is how to work with data and numbers to improve my design. Um, because we have such a large uh, community of users all over the world, we understand pretty deeply how to use the things we, we design and build, and then using that to make our design better. Um, that's something that uh, I'm learning how to do every day here. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Base CRM is looking for a product designer. The New York Times is looking for product designers across several departments, customer relationship, customer acquisition, customer onboarding, and more. Facebook is looking for UX researchers for their growth and ad departments. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for our weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. And if you're still looking for more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp for marketing automation and email newsletters. MailChimp is great for entrepreneurs with small businesses, but their team also builds enterprise-level tools and functionality as well. If you want to check that out, go to MailChimp Pro at MailChimp.com forward slash pro. When you have a really great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it super easy for you to find that domain name and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. I think what I like best about Hover is the fact that each domain purchase also means you get free private registration, so your email address and all that stuff is not out there for anyone to pick up if they do a simple whois search or something like that. Usually you pay extra for that if you get your domain anywhere else. With Hover, it's rolled into the price. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code REVISIONPATH and you'll save 10% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising update. So we're still holding strong at 35 patrons. That's for a total of $261 per month. Again, I really cannot stress enough all of you that have pledged your support and appreciation for the show through Patreon. You know, we're just a few episodes away from our 150th episode of Revision Back. Can you believe it? 150 episodes? Um, And I just updated the goals and the perks over on our Patreon page. So if you enjoy the show, if you enjoy the guests, and if you've got any value from listening to the show, please consider becoming a patron. 
You'll get access to some great perks like early access to future episodes, uh, free revision path goodies like I just got some new stickers and I got some new uh, notebooks design which are really cool. And even more, we also have a special blog that's just for our patrons. Special information that you really won't find anywhere else will be the first person to know about it. Um, head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge level started just $1 per month. That's quarter a week. If you add it all up, that's $12 a year. You probably pay more than that for a lot of other things that don't provide the same type of value that we do here on the show. So please consider donating. It helps keep this going for the next generation of designers out there. Now let's get on to this week's interview. I'm talking with Sanford Green, an illustrator for Marvel Comics. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Sanford Green, and I am an illustrator for Marvel Comics, Marvel Entertainment, actually. So Marvel is huge right now in terms of entertainment. I mean, of course, everyone knows them from comic books, but now they've spilled over into television really heavily. And of course, there's, you know, the movie franchises. How did you first get involved with Marvel? It was about, I think about four or five years ago, I met editor-in-chief Axel Alonso at a dinner party. And um, we just started talking. Actually, we weren't really even talking with one another. I overheard his conversation. Honestly, I was eavesdropping, (laughs) to be honest with you. He was talking about music. And uh, it it just fascinated me, the music that he was referring to. Hip-hop specifically, he started mentioning mentioning, uh, some, some very... Like, you have to really be into the culture to know these groups. And um, it just floored me because I thought, you know, someone of that position probably wouldn't be that in tune to to that style of music. You know, maybe at one point in time, but not at that time that he was uh, in that position. And um, I, it just kind of caught my attention and I had to interrupt the, the, their conversation and just introduce myself because I, you know, I was like, hey, man, I overheard you talking about the, uh, this, this type of music and the, these groups. And, you know, he basically mentioned groups like uh, Gangstar and Pete Rock and CL Smooth and EPMD. I mean, th- these are they're staples in the hip hop community. But in in that realm, it just kind of you just didn't expect that type of conversation to happen it's very corporate very for lack of better words caucasian <laughs> so mm-hmm. it was just one of those things that impressed me about him and um he is a he he's cuban i think white uh he's english cuban i think something like that so i knew that he you know he definitely had some other nationality um happening there but still it, it just uh that caught my attention and then we just started talking about music and he he didn't know who I was um, at the time. I was still kind of uh, breaking into the industry and what have you. And that's when, you know, I just told him, you know, he asked, what what do I do? And I told him that I was an illustrator. And at the time, I think I'd done some stuff. I was working with DC Comics and some other smaller publishers. He He, he was interested in, you know, of course, because of the conversation, he was interested in seeing what I, you know, what I had artistically and we met that next morning for breakfast and uh, brought my portfolio showed him all my work 
He liked it. And the first thing he said, man, your your style will never work at Marvel right now. <laughs> you know, at, wow. at the time, because it was very influenced by urban culture. And that was understandable because I, I heard that before. There's a few artists at that time. They were kind of we were kind of all kind of lumped together in that, I guess, that mold or that the artistic um, genre of being um, cartoonist, more cartoonist than than illustrator or what have you. It was just kind of a weird time for the industry. Everything had to be like kind of uh, pseudo realism and things that were, you know, because movies, the movies were starting to grow and they, the companies were looking more for, they're looking more for uh, that look and style that kind of depict actors from the movies um and you know my work was far from that but he did say that he that's some of the stuff that he loved so he said man i really love your work man if i can give you a job right now i would the powers that be at the time he 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 was just getting into his role as editor-in-chief you know he had to make sure that he played his position you know as best as possible you know just he didn't want to overstep the boundaries at the time to be honest with you, I wasn't necessarily looking to get like a job. I know that sounds kind of like, well, really? I mean, that's what you, that's everyone's dream, you know, as a comic book illustrator is to work for Marvel or what have you. I wanted that, but what I wanted more than anything was to just get some ideas out there and just be a part of something. You know, it doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be like a single issue or something like that of a story, some stories that I had in mind that basically depict the culture that I was most influenced by. And that was the, you know, urban culture. And I just told him that, you know, it's funny that he said that my style wouldn't work there, but that's what I wanted to do there. I wanted to do something that, that was different, that was you know, pushing some boundaries um, artistically and in, in really uh, making a dent into other genres, you know, as far as like urban culture and Asian influences, you know, as far as like anime, manga, that stuff. A lot of that stuff was kind of where all my influences came from. But, you know, long story short, we, after our conversation, we ended off with the agreement that we would stay in touch as much as possible because honestly there was a friendship brewing just from that because ultimately we were we had interests in other things the music of course sports so it was just a breath of fresh air to be able to connect with someone that was interested in those things as well Long story short, we stayed in contact over a year and a half or so, and he called me, reached out to me um, out of the blue and said, hey, man, I think I got something for you. And I got my first job uh, working on Spider-Man, and that was, you know, uh, kind of the beginning of me really starting to, you know, get my my feet wet with the company. And then shortly after that, I did some other stuff, uh, this character is really popular right now. Deadpool, I did some work on that and some X-Men stuff. And, you know, just slowly just kind of climbed up through the ranks. And a year and a half ago, I started on this book um, called Runaways. It was a relaunch of 
there of that title that it came out I think in 2006 or seven and this writer by by the name of Michael K Vaughn I'm sorry Brian K Vaughn he really made that 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 title like one of the most beloved titles at Marvel and they canceled the book shortly after you know he left the company and they wanted to relaunch it with me as the artist and truth be told i was extremely nervous about that because it had such a devoted fan following but you know i did that that job that project and um it was well received though we got a lot of acclaim for it so uh and shortly after that because of the popularity of that it really got me in position to work on what I'm doing now, and that's Power Man and Iron Fist, which is their new title at Marvel. I'm sorry, it was yeah. a, a long story, but you know there were some things in there I thought was interesting to to point out. So, but that's basically it. So, you know, about in about five years, that's about five years worth of um, working there. Yeah, and I mean, when when you're doing that, you're putting in your dues. It's not like you just kind of show it up and it happened, you have to kind of build up from book to book in order to get where you are now. Right. Talk about the the current title, Power Man and Iron Fish. You're working with uh with the David Walker on that. Yeah. Tell me about that book. Well yeah, it's definitely um great to be working with the David Walker. He's a good buddy. I guess what do you want to what do you want to know as far as working with him or how do we get the project or yeah, like how'd you get the project? What's it like working with him? And I know that the the book's already out now. I've already got some issues out, but where do you kind of see it going? If if you can speak on um, that. Well, I can definitely speak on how it started, and maybe a little bit of where it's going. Just you know, for you know, uh, just keeping things kind of uh, close to the vest on that front. But how it started was. You know, again, with the editor-in-chief, Axel Alonzo, we had a meeting a little over a year ago in New York at the offices, and um, we had a dinner meeting. And, uh, you know, he was excited about trying to keep me busy and in, in, in doing new projects. And uh, I expressed to him how I would love to do something with Luke Cage. It was interesting because even at that meeting, he didn't really... I guess let he didn't come across like he really was hearing what I said. <laughs> so, but that's what these editors do, man. They, it's one of those things where you know they definitely aren't going to let the cat out of the bag, but so quick. Which you know that's that's understandable because you don't want to. You know, this industry is very easy to um, put things out there before it's really time. You know, I just thought, you know, I said what I needed to say about my interest, but it never really seemed to um, resonate at the time. But um, I think about maybe two weeks later, I get an email and a phone call from one of the editors at the at, at Marvel. His name is Jake Thomas. He's the editor of Power Man Iron Fist. He says, hey, man, this is Jake. And, he, you know, introduced himself and. Is really cool, and he said, "Hey, man. So, um, Axel tells me that uh, you're interested in working on some Power Man." I went, "Oh, wow! He heard what I said." <laughs> 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 I was just, <laughs> I just thought that was interesting, and um, he said, "Well, we got some things planned here, and we're trying to put this thing together." And um, yeah, man, you're you're on the top of the list, and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, this is kind of kind of awesome," 
you know, then we started talking about uh, who would I like to work with as far as a writer. And it's funny because David, we've, we've known each other for the past, I don't know, six years, maybe longer, seven or so. Uh, we met at the San Diego Comic Con a few years back and his cousin and I worked together on a project and that's how we were introduced and at that time, you know, I think David was working on some other project, I think, or something. And we kept saying, hey, you know, we should try to do something together at one point. And, you know, he's trying to make it. I'm trying to make it. So we lose touch over time. But we will always come back every year to that same point. We need to do something together. And finally, he told me, he said, hey, man, I got something really big happening. I can't say what it is just yet. It sounds like, you know, me and you might have an opportunity to finally work on something together. And uh, that was pretty, pretty exciting. Found out it was Shaft. And he's writing that. He was writing that. I think he's still writing it right now. And I got the opportunity to work on the covers for the first volume, the first six issues, which is one volume. I did all the covers for that. And what's funny was, Marvel was looking at him during that time he was working on Shaft and they were talking to him about possibly working with, you know, them on some projects. And Luke Cage was one of those projects. It was funny. We were working together without realizing that we had another opportunity together because Marvel had already kind of paired us together before they realized that we were already doing stuff over at, uh, this other publisher working on Shaft. So I get another call from Marvel trying to, you know, finalize the whole deal. And uh, they bring up David's name. They say, yeah, we were thinking about this guy, David Walker. You ever heard of him? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, "Uh, yeah, I think I've heard of that dude before. Um, What does he do again? I mean, I was just being really coy with it. But um, I'd let them know that eventually they do. We're actually working together now on the Shaft project. And uh, they were like, oh, wow, well, this is just meant to be. So long story short, everything got finalized. We were off to the races. We started on it uh, back in September, October. And now we're full steam ahead here. We're in issue three just dropped a few weeks ago. Issue one is on its third printing right now, which is a pretty big deal in the comic industry. Yeah, we're, we're just uh, full steam ahead here, man. We've gotten, gotten nothing but admiration and, and great feedback, fan support, all of the above, man. Everything has been just been, it's been grand. So we're excited um, as far as where things are going right now. We're looking at, it's, it's an ongoing series, obviously, but... Um, you know, it's interesting because Marvel sometimes, you know, I guess I I can do some inside baseball here. They do this kind of ambiguous title launch with as far as you don't really know if it's a mini series or if it's an ongoing series because they, they kind of like to have the finger on the trigger. <laughs> You know, if this thing doesn't do too well, they can pull it at issue four or five or six or whatever. And then, oh, it was a miniseries. So it it comes across like that was the the plan to begin with. 
most companies do that. Most publishers, comic publishers, anyway. I would imagine some book publishers too. I don't know, but they do that. But with our book, they had the utmost confidence to uh, call it an ongoing series from the very beginning. Um, they felt like it was going to do well regardless. So that was great that they had that much confidence in us creatively um, that we would keep this uh, fire hot. Like I said, it, we're about to uh, go into the summer event uh, called Civil War. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure you, you've heard of that from the movie standpoint. So it's gonna yeah. be it's gonna loosely be based on that. The Civil War movie is honestly based on the original Civil War that came out about six years ago. I think maybe longer. That was a big event for Marvel back then. So that's where the movie is going to uh, be based off of. But the um, actual comic is going to be based off of the continuation of that. What happened, the results of what happened then is going to come back. And now it's going to have a, a, I guess, quote unquote, greater consequence with it this time. So we're in the middle of that right now. Luke Cage and Danny Rand, which uh, that's Power Man and Iron Fist. They are definitely they're going to have their opinions about that. Because Civil War is is exactly what it is. It's like brother against brother. And these two guys are their comrades at arms and uh, brothers, keepers and all that good stuff. But even with this thing, it is going to cause a a riff. And I'll leave it at that. (laughs) But uh, I think it's cool because there's not a whole lot of duos in a Marvel Universe. Right. You know, there's a lot of teams and solo books and what have you, but there's not too many dynamic duos, to to say the least. And to have that dynamic, it really sets up for a really interesting story during the Civil War. So that's uh, that's where we're going right now. So I got a question here from our Slack community. question is, how do you feel about Luke Cage's resurgence as a popular comic book hero? And I'm guessing not just as a comic book hero, but also I think as a, a pop culture sort of hero, because now, of course, he's got the show that's coming out on Netflix later on this year. Iron Fist also has a series that's coming out on Netflix. How do you feel about kind of Luke Cage coming back into the spotlight? Well, it's, it's definitely um, awesome and, and exciting to be a part of that, because honestly, I feel like it's in a lot of ways it's history making because Marvel is taking a turn in its entire universe and diversity is a very central part of that but not for diversity's sake i think sometimes that word gets tossed around a little too loosely so maybe i shouldn't even use it at that time but it it's but for for luke cage to be for there be to be that much excitement about his emergence is it's very telling it's it shows that there is has been a loud cry for uh these characters to step forth for a while i mean your falcons your black panthers your misty knights you know all these characters are having a platform now and they will continue to have platforms i mean now just speaking on diversity you know these african-american characters or black characters i should say and it's gonna. It's just opening the door for Asian characters and you know Middle Eastern characters and, and and so on and so forth. And so we're excited that we're the launching pad of that. 
to be honest with mm-hmm. you. And yeah, you know, we're just uh, trying to take care of these toys as best as possible because, uh, you know, Marvel allowed us to play with them and we don't want to break them. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, I don't think we could break them even if we try because I think people are just looking for this representation uh they've been clamoring for it for a while and uh you know we don't want to misrepresent but at the same time i think even if there's some things that people may not agree with they are still willing to support and come along for the ride because there's enough there to for people to feel great, uh, great about so speaking about diversity do you think that the comic industry is kind of making forward steps on diversity and when i say that i mean not just with characters that we see like luke cage but you know behind the scenes as well writers artists etc yeah um you know again i'm glad you touched on that because that was another point uh because not only are characters starting to be represented we're, we're starting to see the people that create these characters represented some people of color starting to come in to play women more women. It was pretty encouraging to see. I was at a convention in Seattle a few weeks ago, and the guest list, it, it had to be 50-50 men and women. I mean, I kid you not. At one point in time, when I first got in this industry, I mean, you can count on one hand the amount of comic women comic creators. Now, it's like the, the diversity of, or of even the women is diverse. You know, not only do you see just women of color. I mean, of course, you, you you have just women, you know, older, older, even the younger, younger women, older women are, are starting to get opportunities to tell stories and um, and do pictures. And, and that's that's incredible just to see how quickly it's blossomed. And not even just from that standpoint, just from the fandom side. I mean, I honestly think that's where that, that was the, the beginning of it. Like that was the, the seed that that blossom into this incredible tree of just uh women creators it came from the convention portion of this the fandom portion women and i think also it kind of the original i guess incarnation of this came from women that that were into like manga and things of that nature and the industry the comic industry american comics finally realized wow this is how you get you know more diversity you start looking at what are they into books are they reading and they start telling stories sequential stories based on the on those things it doesn't have to always be capes and tights and things of that nature it just has to be you know good stories and that's what they did they just told great stories um we started telling great stories marvel and dc to some degree um started telling some diverse stories and the women started coming to these conventions. They they started doing the costuming, which was another big component. And now, you know, I think that that made the industry realize that women are really into this. They want this. They want to see more of this. Uh, the same thing with blacks. The same thing with the other uh, people of color. It's like the more you start showing characters and bringing creators into this, the more they're going to start coming and um, becoming a part of it. So uh, it's um, it's incredible to be in the midst of this zeitgeist, if you will. 
So what have been some challenges as a designer and as a black man in the comic book industry for you? Because it sounds like you kind of came in at just the right time. Yeah, I, I would say, honestly, I, I've been around. I've been trying to figure out my path for a while. So it's not like this thing just happened. I just came through at the right time. I, I've had my, my fair share of bumps and bruises, if you will. Um, and, and honestly, I never really thought of it when I was going through the challenges as, oh, this is because of color of my skin. It was just where I was artistically. I never really felt that, that my skin color was a hindrance to making it in the industry. I do think that my influences, which were, you know, again, you know, urban culture and things of that nature, which honestly is just, there's a lot of people of color that's into that culture. So to some degree, it, it loosely can be tied to that, but that's what I was into. And I felt like, you know, if I can't be what I feel comfortable with, then maybe this isn't for me. I got to the point where I felt that way, but it's interesting because every point in time I came to that, I was reassured that, no, you still have a story to tell. You still have some opportunity out there. It's just not right at the moment. So, yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily see it as an issue because of skin color. Now, I will say this. I think some of the things that we're trying to do, I don't know if you, what are these guys. They're, they're, this other podcast made a comment about the way that I draw certain characters with the bigger mm -hmm. lips and the bigger, you know, no. It came across, honestly, it came across a little racist. And I, it was funny. I wasn't thinking about the racist part, but other people did. And people called in to this podcast complaining about it, saying, hey, dude, do you realize what you're seeing and, and how it's coming across? He honestly didn't realize it. Lesson learned. You know, sometimes what they say about ignorance, you know, it's, it's bliss. You, you, you just think, Hey, this is funny, but you don't realize how it's affecting someone else, you know? So and that was an interesting moment. But other than that, I hadn't had any in for, and for, and for the record, that podcast, they apologize on, on live on the air and all that stuff. And that's the other thing too. I, I do think that, how should I say this? I think it's very easy to be, afraid of seeing what you really think about something because of the potential backlash. Now, mm -hmm. everybody wants a voice and everyone should have a voice. But just because someone says, hey, those lips are, that's some really big lips on that character, doesn't necessarily mean he's racist. It doesn't necessarily mean he's coming down on all black folks or all Asian folks are all whatever, you know, it's just a comment that's just taken, you know, maybe it could have been used, if you said in a different way, but even if it, but that's the whole point. What other way can you say, <laughs> say that? Mm -hmm. and I think that's the thing. People get so, well, how can I say this without offending someone? We're just in that place right now where it's just, it's interesting, man. I mean, you can't sneeze without someone going, why did you sneeze that way? What was that all about? That's because you, you you sneeze that way because you're thinking. I mean, you automatically put into this category 
it's funny, people that do that don't want to be put in categories. They're doing the very thing that they don't like. And that's, you know, the judging and the whatever. Now, there are blatant things, trust me, you know, and I don't want to go too far into that with politics stuff and, and what have you. But there are things at the same time, like, you know, just let it go. We got too much work to do. You know, there's too much out there that we need to focus on rather than the way someone put this out there. And and honestly, even with the, the situation that happened on, on that end, that was it. I, I'm not going to make it a an issue. It's very easy. It is so easy to make that an issue. I could put them on the Internet and blast them and say, no one listen to the podcast ever again and boycott this and whatever. You know, when you see them in the street, you know, let them know about it. All that I can do that easily because I, I kind of have that platform to because people are kind of that's a delicate thing because people kind of hinge on your word. You know, that's why when I do these podcasts, you know, I want to make sure that I don't give any fuel to anything. You know, I try to be neutral. You know, if something's not right, it's not right. I mean, yeah, I'll speak on that. But then there's things where, you know, let's not make a mountain out of a molehill, you know. So that's, uh, I guess I, I digress on that. I don't even know if I answered your question or not, but. <laughs> no, you did. You did. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask, what's like a typical day like for you? I mean, I would imagine, of course, there's a lot of drawing um, and there's probably some meetings in there. But kind of walk me through what's a typical day like for you. Oh, man. Okay, I can give you today. Woke up this morning about 7-ish from last night's deadline. I had a deadline that took me into doing – I had to finish up some some – I had to finish an assignment last night that I needed to wait until today to get with someone before I finished it. So I had to get up extra early. I normally get up anyway early, but um, that was seven is still earlier. It's early to me. Anyway, Mm -hmm. so I get up at seven, got up at seven. I also I'm a professor at um, a local um, school here. I teach illustration and I had a meeting this morning at, um, at that time. And and on the average day, if I go there, I have a studio there. I'm the artist in residence at this institution. It's Benedict College here in South Carolina. I have a studio there, and I, I, I may go to work there, and I'll work until about three or so and come home and you know do the family thing. I had an extra wrinkle in my schedule today where I had to go do some judging for a high school art exhibit and uh that took about two and a half hours and i usually do those types of things i I help out with high school um art programs in the local area because they are kind of a a connection to our college and as an artist in residence that's more of my job you know when i do that part and but it also it, it sounds real convoluted and kind of busy but really it's just you know maybe going to a school once or twice a month, you know, some high school somewhere and speaking to kids and doing workshops and all that good stuff. But the rest of the time I'm working on my, my, my projects and what have you um, at Marvel and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and, you know, it's just a, I finish, you know, I get to finish my work around seven in the evening, eat dinner, and then I'm back at it by 10 and work until one or two in the morning, you know, and um, mm-hmm. I try to sleep. Huh? Repeat it all over again. Yeah, huh? yeah. I try to get some sleep in and 
We'll see. We'll see what happens tonight, man. I'm, I'm tired right now, dude. Uh, it's just been a, a a long day. But uh, and then you know, you know, stuff like uh, weekends and stuff like that. You try to do the family thing and make that. You try to protect that time. Right. What are some of your favorite tools to work with? <laughs> this may sound kind of uh, easy to say, but uh, pen and paper, man. I love the feel of paper. I love digital too, but um, I love uh, the feel of the paper. Um, I have this uh, brush called the, um, it's a pilot brush pen, but I also use a Winsor Newton Series 1 actual brush. And I, you know, I use actual Sumi ink, which is a, a Japanese ink and it's very, it's very dark. You can dilute it somewhat and kind of get more of a, of a watercolor feel if you like, but um, it's, it can be thick or thin. But I use those tools for the most part. And, you know, I love Photoshop. I love coloring. I love doing my own colors. Yeah, man. But pen and paper is where it all starts. Are you familiar with Ron Wimberly? Does that name sound Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So I got. A, I have another question here then from our Slack room. Mm-hmm. Ron Wimberly did a piece uh, last year on Medium mm-hmm. called Lighten Up. Yep. It was about, like, skin tone and comics yep. and stuff. Yep. Have you ever run into that kind of issue, like with an editor or something like that, with what you do? No, nothing like that. Not on the not on the scale of, hey, can you make this character lighter and make all these characters look like something other than black or whatever, you know? No, no. I, I know that's kind of a, <laughs> you know, that's a, a quick answer. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't had anything. And fortunately, you know, I have an editor that really gets it. I mean, for... And I will say this, I had the reverse of it where I had a, well, we had one of the characters from Power Man and Iron Fist. She's a character that we brought back from the older comics from the 80s, 70s. And I didn't know what her skin tone was and what she looked like then. She looked like she could have been black. And I made her not necessarily like, you know, brown black, but I made her like a fairer skin black. And I think just by not really even thinking about it over time, she got darker. And that was because of the skin, not skin choices, but color choices that we were doing. We're making the characters, we were putting the characters in like scenes that were dark scenes. So she Mm -hmm. she came across across darker and we just had to be mindful of of that because once that happened, then I kind of kept her that way for the rest of the issue. <laughs> but you know, that wasn't a a thing of, hey, make her lighter. We just want her to be lighter. That was like, hey, you already had her this way. Just be consistent. So uh, kudos yeah. to my editor for just paying attention to the different skin tones that we had in there because there were dark skins and light lighter skins, and you know that's what our book has a lot of. So. Um, so, yeah, that's honestly the reverse side of it. They, they wanted to show the different diversities in skin tones. So, Who's your favorite character to draw? Luke and Danny, I guess, besides doing my own stuff. Okay, I want to talk about your own stuff. One more question, though, in terms of like characters and stuff. Is there a character out there that you would like to draw? Like a book or a title that you'd want to get on? Not really. I mean, this was it right here, man. This is the one I wanted to do. Uh, okay. which is really cool to be able to, uh, you know, I grew up with these characters. This is some of the first characters that made me buy comics. You know, as a little brown boy, you see this cool dude on a cover 
you know, picking up a car and look, he's a, he's, he looks like me. He's a brown guy mm-hmm. with muscles. He wore a tiara. You know, I didn't know what that was at the time, but it looked cool to me. <laughs> it looked cool. He had on the gold shirt and the tiara. And the, so, you know, that that's, uh, I think I, I've reached my, my level here. I mean, of course, it's always great to draw something like a Batman or what have you. But, um, you know, for me, from a emotional standpoint, this is it. So let's talk about your, your personal projects that you're working on. What are you doing? Without going too far into one of these things, uh, well, I'll tell you about this other one. I have this project called Rotten Apple, which was originally going to be a miniseries at Dark Horse. Then Marvel came and kind of scooped me up and hired me full time. And But I managed to get a, 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 um, a one shot out of that idea. And that's out there right now. <clears throat> I'm working on another one, one shot, loosely working on it right now. And that's hopefully going to drop by the end of the year. We'll see where it goes. But uh, right now, that's something that I'm in the process of doing. It's called Rotten Apple. Basically, it's a it's a female protagonist because that was one thing that I realized that even though you see a, a lot more, and even though I, I, I was saying that earlier, there's still more room to grow in that area. So... Um, female protagonist lives in New York City. She basically is connected to New York City in a supernatural kind of way because there are ancient spirits that basically keeps the city thriving. No one knows mm-hmm. that but her. There's the reason why all of that's why city, you know, New York is considered the the city of all cities. And um, that's because there are things there that can't be explained that no one sees and will never understand, but she knows about it. And basically, there's a gate that kind of keeps all those things from really exploding into the real world. You know, they're spiritual things, but they can take over the real world. And basically, um, she watches that gate and she keeps those things in check where they need to be. There are things that happen from a subtle standpoint, but those things are allowed but the extreme things can never get out (laughs) you know but there's something that knows about this gate as well and the gate is located in manhattan by the way why not it should Times square to be exact well of course it would be located there so you know (laughs) but um there's something else that knows about this gate and they managed to get to the gate they managed to divert to divert her get to the gate and manage to crack it open the goal was to open it completely. They want to create Armageddon. They can only crack it. These things get out and they level Manhattan, Times Square. So the Big Apple became known as a rotten apple. They thought it was ah, okay. you know, some type of natural disaster, like an earthquake or whatever. But she knows what it was. And now these relics and spiritual entities are scattered all over the, the world, really. And she has to retrieve these things and get them back behind this gate before all hell really breaks loose. So it's almost like a, an adult Pokemon. <laughs> got to go catch them. She got to catch them. So um, she's going to run into adversaries and allies and all that good stuff. If you're a fan of like um, Blade Runner and Ninja Scroll, I think you'll dig this. <laughs> 
And is, is that coming out on Marvel too, or is that with a different that's company? The, I'm sorry, that's Dark Horse. I thought I mentioned that. But yeah, Dark Horse okay. Comics, another company that I've worked for before Marvel came along. So. so how different is it going from, I guess, artist to creator? Because, I mean, you're, you're creating it, you're writing it, you're drawing it. Like, how do you get a foothold on something like that to start? And I'm asking, I mean, from a personal standpoint, because I have like my own comic ideas that I would love to do something with. Mm-hmm. But how do you sort of, how do you navigate that? Where do you start? Write, honestly. I mean, write, or if you draw, draw to sketch out the idea and get a little, a little sketch pad or what have you and sketch out the ideas, write down the ideas and just kind of use that as a your, your journal and uh, just keep creating. Let that journal just build over time and um, you'll have enough ideas there to start to uh, formulate uh, something, a short story or or anything uh, of that nature. You know, that also helps you to flesh it out and to, again, just kind of formulate those ideas. So, yeah, there's a number of ways, but that's probably the most practical. Just put the work in, basically. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it's easier because you're already in the industry? Yeah, absolutely. It's like, uh, I call it the Jamie Foxx syndrome. Remember? <laughs> You remember Jamie Foxx before he was Jamie Foxx, you know, Jamie Foxx. Yeah, in Living Color and everything. Oh, yeah, he was was kind of a stand-in in Living Color. I mean, and then he did, you know, his character, um, what's the female character he did on there? Wanda. Wanda, you know, and he kind of got a name, but it wasn't, it was a name, but it wasn't the name that you would hear. Like, it didn't cross over quite yet. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he got his own show. And then, you know, that kind of dissipated, but that was still within the vein of a certain genre um, and demographic, if you will. But then he did the movie Ray and got his Oscar. See what I'm saying? Now he he, he can cross-pollinate. Now he's doing movies with Tom Cruise. And you know what I'm saying? It's like now he's on the A-list. Now he's headlining. Now he's main on on the main marquee that kind of thing so never was he always was funny always in in a lot of ways successful but that that appeal over time grew and then he hit that that apex now he can say i'm gonna do this kind of movie and people will be more into that because they've they've seen he's he's viable that Academy kind of validates him. And I'm not saying that I got to win an award, but when you work for big companies in, in, or, or do big projects with these big companies, of course your name is going to stand out more in that realm. You have a bigger platform <clears throat> to stand on. So with, with that, you use that to say, hey, you know, the world is looking at me now. Let me direct their attention over to something that I'm doing since they're looking at me. You know, so um, and honestly, it's funny because I've had these ideas for at least 10 years, you know, and I try to put them out before. Not just this rotten apple idea, but other ideas. And, you know, people thought they were cool, but everyone liked them. But it just wasn't something that had the validation behind it yet. You know, I'm, I'm an unproven artist or whatever at the time. So it just becomes one of those things where they... They, they 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 liked it, but it just wasn't validated. So 
now I think there's um, some room for doing these things because, like I said, I'm, I'm working with this big company, and uh, yeah, we we we're gonna you know strike while the iron's hot, <laughs> as they right. say. So this is a question from our Slack room. Uh, have you ever been conflicted by your spirituality and your professional work or your musical preferences? That's an interesting question. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I consider myself a, a spiritual person. Not perfect, but definitely I have uh, convictions, deep convictions about the type of work that I do, the companies that I would work for or wouldn't work for, that kind of thing. And I try to put forth work that's not going to hinder that as far as my person. I also think about, you know, representation. If I'm representing, you know, spiritual practices and convictions, I don't want it to be something that would conflict that. If someone sees me, you know, like if they see an illustration of a really scantily clad drawing of a character, that wouldn't represent what I stand for or even extreme gore violence, nonsensical violence, you know, those kind of things. I, I stay away from that kind of stuff. You know, musically, I try to, I mean, I watch movies, listen to music. I don't go out of my way to listen to anything completely like, I don't know what, what the word would be. Um, like vulgar or vulgar, anything? Vulgar, like uh, demonic or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. I, that's not my, my taste. And as I grew older... Uh, my taste, even uh, the line is becoming even more and more hard, and, you know, because I, I just, you know, there's things in there's a passage um, in the Bible. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it basically that talks about not causing in these, any of these little ones to to, to sin or to, to to fall into you know temptation. It's like I'm not going to play something or do something around someone that could cause them to struggle or cause them to, to go, wow, you know, I thought you were, you know, the second guess who I am or even to cause themselves personally to have a hard time. Like, I'm not going to go to a movie that I know someone may not be able to handle or if I can't handle or, you know, things of that nature or music or whatever. So artistically, you know, I, I do have to be mindful, okay, this scene right here in this particular moment what does this really look like how does it come across if i'm just a a person not knowing anything about who sanford green is when i see him when i see this drawing what am i going to think about that am i going to think wow that's a really great drawing it has a lot of power a lot of or, or am i going to think something differently like whoa man you really drew that girl's you know behind really big and her breasts really big wow man that, you know it's like if what are people's first impressions I'm with my my work, so you know I I know that's you know kind of a convoluted answer, but that's kind of where I am is you know try to walk the talk, if you mm-hmm. you know artistically, creatively, you know what I say, I'm trying to represent that in my creative process as well. So who else is out there that's working in comics that you really admire? Like who are some of your favorite writers and artists and creators right now? Oh man, I mean, you just mentioned one. I, I love uh, Ron Wembley stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm digging James Heron. I, I don't know if you heard of that guy. He's doing this book called this book called Rumble over at Image Comics. I think he's doing you know some really cool stuff. I love Stuart Eminen. He's he's always been a tremendous artist. 
for a long time. He's doing some awesome work now, some stuff that I'm looking forward to coming up. Man, there's so many guys, man. I think Jason Latour, he's doing um, this uh, Southern Bastard book that's huge right now. I think it's going to be an FX show coming up, but uh, that's another image title. It's funny because everyone that I'm naming right now, they're all doing like creator own stuff. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but that's good. It's funny because that's good though. Yeah. I mean, it's like at one point in time, you know, and I hope people don't take this the wrong way when they hear it, but Marvel and DC is not as big as they were before in terms of like careers for artists. Like mm-hmm. it, it's a great platform to get to do what you really want to do. You know, and I think Marvel and DC, they recognize that. Don't get me wrong. It is absolutely huge to work for them. But once you get there, how do you take that to another level? I realized a long time ago that I don't own Spider-Man or Batman, but I own Rotten Apple. You know, how do I get Rotten Apple to be talked about the same way as a Spider-Man? or whatever, or not even necessarily a Spider-Man or whatever, but how about just as much as a Hellboy or The Walking Dead? You know, it's like, those are all comic books. They're not, right. you know, they're not Spider-Man or Batman, but they are definitely huge. And they're owned by these guys, these individual creators. They're not owned by a corporation like a Disney or a, a Warner Brothers or whatever, you know? So mm-hmm. there are a lot of creators that are thinking like that right now. And I think that's a, that you have to. How many times have we seen these creators from the 60s and 70s? They're coming out trying to get money for characters they created back then that are in movies now. You know, the character, people that created all these characters that are making huge billions of dollars for these companies these guys, they, they, were, they were created by these guys back in the 60s and, and some in the 50s even in and, the and 70s. And they got pennies on the dollar for the most part. And it's just what it was. And those characters were owned by these companies. These people, you know, gave their blood, sweat and tears to these ideas. And they got a check for the moment. But after they, you know, they're gone, nothing to show for it. I definitely don't want to be a creator you know at uh, 50 or 60 or 70 or whatever and I'm trying to chase down one of these companies to pay me for something that I did mm-hmm. you know 20 years earlier you know 30 years earlier and they're you know of course they're and those things are starting to change because you're starting to see more and more of these cases go to court and, and, and people look what you have to do to go through just trying to get payments or notoriety even. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's just myself along with many other creators. I mean, the, the way to go is just to do your own stuff. The platforms are so vast now. I mean, with the internet, with so many different outlets, cable-wise, you don't have to worry about just making a movie anymore. It's not That's not it anymore. I mean, you can get, in Hollywood, they're looking. They're looking for as many ideas as they can possibly get. And the more your idea stands out, the more chance and the better chance you have to possibly having a walking dead or what have you, you know. So 
No, I take that back. There's nothing like The Walking Dead. I've never seen anything quite like that. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. I, I know the guy that created that, actually. I, I, I knew him when he first came in the industry, and, and he talked about doing this zombie book, and we all thought, dude, come on, man. It's like zombie. You know, that's like everybody does zombie stuff. Be, be original. Be different. You know, his was original. It was different. You know, it was something familiar, you know, with a very interesting twist. So, and and plus he was just in the right place at the right time. I do believe that has a lot to do with creators getting their stuff out there is right place, right time. You kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but how do you think that technology has changed the comics industry? Well, again, just uh, the internet, man. I mean... Goodness gracious! I mean, you even with your your podcast, um, I would imagine you can post this whenever, and it's there for the entire world. Anyone yeah. that has a computer can tap into this thing. Is you don't have to pay for it. You don't have to be in a certain area to get it. Like you know, like a cable company or something like that. You don't have to worry about that. It's the internet. You, mm-hmm. you give the the link. They can go to it, simple and plain, and uh, that's extremely powerful. I mean, as 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 cliche as it is, as it sounds about you know the internet, it really is it. That's it. I mean, you want to put something out there, put it on the internet, <laughs> and I don't care what it is. It can be Stickman, and Stickman, I guarantee you, you know, some person in. Budapest will see this thing and and say, you know, wow, I really like this idea. I want to see more of it. And they'll tell some friends and then they like it. And next thing you know, you got tens of thousands of people looking at your stuff. And it's just because you did something, you know, you just took a chance and put it out there. Mm -hmm. What about like the tools and everything? I mean, we've got, you know, so many graphic tablets and, you have, you know, programs like Photoshop and Anime Studio that let you, you know, kind of do so much in terms of, of your art. Like, do you think that's also helping as well? Well, yeah, it definitely helps the, the process creatively. You can put together an entire book, you know, in, in a couple of weeks if you have the right technology. Of course, for the Photoshop and having... Um, other hardware, like um, I use this uh, hardware called Cintiq. It's a, mm-hmm. a Wacom tablet, basically with a screen that you draw on the actual screen. So instead of paper, I can just draw straight on the screen. I don't have to worry about I cut out scanning and cleaning up the, the scan and all that stuff, which can take hours. Is, that's completely eliminated. So now I can just go straight to drawing save hours on that process and then just adding the color with the right techniques you can drop color on something within minutes if you know what you're doing from a technique standpoint yeah you can make stuff look realistic you can look stuff look make uh things look cartoony you can do whatever genre you want uh whatever medium you can imp- you can um depict any medium you know using this technology photoshop painter Illustrator, you know, these these different softwares. You can animate your stuff if you want to. You can do some rudimentary animations. You can do full-on animation, 2D. You can even go 3D. I mean, it's it's amazing just the the vast amount of avenues you can take your stuff uh, creatively. 
who have been some of the people that have kind of helped you out along the way? I know you talked about, you know, technique and things. Who taught you your technique? Did you did you learn it from a mentor? Did you teach yourself? How'd that go? Well, I actually, um, it's funny because uh, my mentor, uh, Tyrone Jeter, he's probably the closest thing to a father figure. Uh, I have a father, but he's, he's very father-like. And his life lessons were probably greater than his his artistic lessons that he gave me. Honestly, his artistic lessons were, were came from me just watching him. He would show me some things and I would learn, but just watching him, watching how he handles himself, watching how he conducts his business, watching even how he does his technique um, artistically. Um, you can look at his work go online. It's Tyrone Jeter, Jeter like Derek Jeter, G-E-T-E-R, I think, <clears throat> Tyrone Jeter. But um, the guy is tremendous. I mean, his stuff, I bade him. I was so close to trying to get him a deal to doing some covers for Black Panther. <laughs> he's gonna do some variants because he's done he's done children's book illustrations for I don't know for about twenty five years, and he retired from that. He teaches now. Honestly, he teaches at the school that I'm that I'm at right now. So okay. I went to school there, and now I'm the artist in residence there, and he he's been teaching there that whole time. So, yeah, he, he, he's the one that kind of really got me to see art, to understand it, you know, understand the language and not just uh, be so. He helped me to break free of this this notion that I have to do it this way. He helped me to learn all these other approaches to art, which helped me when I came back to the way I want to do things. It helped me to really appreciate not only those things that I learned, but it helped me to implement those things into what I wanted to do. And my stuff came out even better, like learning how to paint. I didn't have any interest in painting because I was so into comic books. He knew where I was trying to go, what I was into, but he was helping me to see that even those artists, they came from something else other than drawing from a comic. They learned from, you know, drawing from life. They learned all the fundamentals of, of art to get to that place to where they can do those comics effectively. I was totally uh, humbled by that. And then, and it really changed my approach on uh, everything. And I tell students the same thing today over and over. This is the approach, you know, go, go in this direction, learn from life, create from life. Don't don't create from a book because they've already got their voice. You need to find your own voice, but you got to start with, the foundation, the foundational stuff. You learn the foundational stuff, then you can start to, you know, implement your voice in that foundational, those foundational things. You mentioned that, you know, Tyrone Jeter is like a, a father figure to you. Were your parents like really supportive of you when you wanted to get into comics? Uh, yeah, yeah. They, it's funny though, you know, I come from a small rural town in South Carolina. You know, it's just not a career path that's, understandable you know yeah. i mean even probably what you do i mean hey i want to go into broadcasting that that's just not in the <laughs> frame of mind for someone that's worked at a mill their whole life not right. that there's anything wrong with that it's just that's just where things are i mean so if you were going into the military or if you were going off to college which you know i did the college thing mm-hmm. it, it was the only way to kind of cloak what you wanted to do 
cloak it to where it makes sense to them. Like, okay, he's going to school. So if he's going to school, he's probably going to do something outside of work, you know, wanting to do agricultural stuff. You know, he's, he's going to do more, you know, something else. And, uh, oh, he's going for art. Okay. And you got to spoon feed them, you know. Um, yeah. and, and it's not like they, they saw it, of course. I mean, artistically, that that's the, the greatest way to, to show people so they can understand. But even after that, it's like, well, how do you make a living from this? What, where would you go? You know, what kind of job would you get? I don't know where you would go to do this. That's where the spoon feeding happened for, for a long time. <laughs> but uh, finally, I think uh, they understand that I'm, I'm doing okay. And, they, and now they even ask, so how's, um, how's the job coming on the, uh, on the book you're working on? So they at least know that, you know, wow, you, you know, this book, is, it's something that he's doing it's with this company and it's out there and he's making a living from it. And he hadn't, you know, come home in 20 years, so he must be doing okay to be doing, you know. So, <laughs> so where do you kind of see yourself in the next five years? I mean, you're you're doing the, the Power Man and Iron Fist book. You're also doing variant covers for the new Black Panther book that's being written by Ta-Nehisi Coates. What's the future look like for you? Will you be doing Rotten Apple? Will you still be at Marvel? What do you think? Probably both, man, I would think. I mean, obviously, everyone wants to do their own thing, I would imagine. Like I said earlier, that's kind of the, the way things has to be. It should be now, unless Marvel and DC wants to cut you a huge chunk of the pie from a creative standpoint. No one's going to put their ideas in those companies' hands. You know, they're not going to do that. You know, so I, I, I think I'll, I'll be, you know, just uh, creating and hopefully by that time, you know, we'll have a, you know, I have a few things out there that's probably turning into some other stuff, some multimedia stuff. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, that's the end goal. I want to be able to retire at 50. That would be kind of cool. Well, actually, that that's only, let's see, it's about 10 years from now. So I got <laughs> I got to get to working. So. Let's go. We have to go here. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and find your work online? Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Sanford Green. It's pretty much the quickest way to get a hold of me. All right. That sounds good. Well, Sanford, thank you again for taking time out of your, your extremely busy schedule. I know you got a lot going on right. to do this interview. I think what was really interesting for me, aside from you know, kind of this really strong work ethic that you have is that you've really put in the dues to kind of get where you are today. Like there's no, there were no shortcuts or, or anything like that. You basically did the work and it doesn't sound to me. And I think probably the audience would agree with this. Like you don't take for granted where you're at right now. Like this is a, a pretty dope spot to be at. I think as a creator in general, to be working on such a big public book and to do the book that you've always wanted to do and to do your own stuff like that's like the trifecta right there so yeah man thank you again for coming on the show i really do appreciate it absolutely thank you guys very much thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week big thanks to sanford green and thanks to you for listening you can find out more about sanford and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. 
They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as building tools like origami, sharing what they've learned on Medium, and by giving back to the design community. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Their attitude may be playful, but their business is serious. Sign up for a free account today. MailChimp, send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, do me a huge favor. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Now, we haven't had a new review in months now that I think about it. And I know you might be wondering why I mention this on every show, but those iTunes rankings really do mean something. They help us get new listeners because people won't listen to a show with low or no reviews. It helps us move up the podcast rankings for design, where we are the only show dedicated to showcasing black designers around the world. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. And that's free promo. You know, seeing some new five-star reviews would definitely make me happy leading up to our 150th episode. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, I mean, have you visited the blog lately? It's been really great. Then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge level started just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks again so much for listening and we'll see you next time.